Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg Weekly Update. This is an informal, story-based podcast designed to capture the life of the scattered, yet more unified than ever, church amidst crisis. This is a moment for the church to be the body of Christ in a world of great need. This podcast is designed to empower and equip you to be an active participant in that mission. Enjoy, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Weekly Update Podcast episode. Who knows? I had no idea when this whole quarantine thing started, we would still be doing this now. I truly can't believe it. I've lost count of the weeks that have gone by. Um, But I am joined by Lisa Kuntz, who should be familiar to the vast majority of you. She is the National Director of 24-7 Prayer for the U.S., She also has visited TGC Williamsburg before. And ironically, Lisa, you were meant to come and preach the weekend that this whole thing started unfolding in front of our national consciousness, at least. So we still want to take you up on that one of these days. But how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm incredibly honored to be asked to speak into the moment and uh, have my words in this conversation shared with the congregation. I'm doing very well, all things considered. Yeah, so Lisa um, and I were chatting a couple of weeks ago. Um, Might have been three weeks ago now, but it was um, really as, as the news regarding George Floyd was just beginning to break. Um, And Lisa, you began sharing with me just kind of your read of this cultural moment in um, in U.S. history. And I, I'd love if you could speak to that a little bit. I remember using the term tipping point of kind of feeling that something had built and built and built and sort of like the dam broke with this moment. So I, I'd love just if you could kind of rehash a bit of that. The phrase that, um, that's been on the inside of me is this phrase, um, this is that. Now, that phrase might be familiar to people who read scripture or even have hung out in the Old Testament when Pentecost struck. It's just this idea that this is that. It's a, It was a phrase uttered to explain to people that the, the things that they had heard rumors about or heard prophecy about or, or even had prayed about or, or had had preached in metaphors about that this was that. And they needed to be told that because what was happening did not look like what they were expecting in response to those words or those prophecies or the things that they had heard. And here in America, we have a long history of of racial injustice. The nation was very much built on it, very much founded on it. It was an integral part of culture. And even when laws started to shift, which they only did as as men and women uh, of the faith community, men and women who were considered themselves followers of Christ began to push back on the laws and the infrastructures and um, and push back um, regarding whether or not there should be slavery, whether or not people should be treated thusly, uh, began to push back even on the common doctrines that were preached in the church that uh, that said that God approved of slavery and that he wanted to make sure that slaves obeyed their masters and that was proof of it. And so slowly throughout his, the United States history, largely because of a pushback of people of faith, laws began to change, um, free slaves were freed, uh, legislation slowly began to dovetail. Um, the Jim Crow laws shifted to uh, not separate but equal, but now an attempt at um, releasing African-Americans to live normally without such a clear separate demarcation. In so many ways, we've come so far, and yet at the same time, the spirit of racism, the stronghold of it that began at the bedrock at the birth of this nation is still very prevalent. Hence, we consistently hear stories of yet another dead Negro, or yet another Mm. instance of police brutality, or yet another instance of racism, or yet another politician caught on tape saying the N-word or communicating 
something that uh, implies that those old mental frameworks are still at play. But even if there was mm -hmm. none of that on the TV or on our newsfeed, the African American community is well aware of just how often, how consistent, how relentless the microaggressions and uh, play out in our daily lives. It's something that we live with, but it's not something that general culture talks about. And so it's, it's almost as if there is an acceptance of, well, this is how it is. You know, this is how it's going to be. And so as, as African-Americans, we've ducked our head, head down and got busy in the business of living as Americans. Um, but mm -hmm. relentlessly, these things would flashpoint across our social feed and slowly more and more uh, of a wider audience of Caucasians even would be able to look up and say, hey, that's not right. More yeah. and more the next time would be able to say, hey, that's not right. And then it would sort of settle down. Here in this season, we encountered the storyline of Ahmad uh, Marbury, who was killed as a result of just public lynching is what, what we refer to it in my culture. But he was murdered by a couple of people that were, um, were trying to make a citizen's arrest. And, and it was at that point that there was a, not a public outcry, but across all of the African-American community that I know of, and I'm, I'm attached to it here locally and across the United States, there was this common language that kept being used that this felt like the last straw. It wasn't just me saying that language. It was repeated over and over again, eeriness. This felt like the last straw. Now, the last wow. straw resulted in the simplicity of people lacing up their shoes and running with mods. The last straw looked like um, Caucasians and families and African-Americans and people of all ages just taking to the streets to jog, to run that, uh, that mile, to run that distance that Ahmad ran. It was a kind of uh, iconic moment um, yeah. that we identified with this. And then came the Central Park incident, which is relatively small, but it was uh, it highlighted how often that had been happening. It reminded us that just a year ago, that was coming up in our newsfeed every three weeks, something like yeah. that. And then finally, George Floyd died um, in the streets as a result of being pinned by a police officer. And that was the tipping point. It wasn't the tipping point because I decided it was or because African-Americans had had enough. It wasn't the tipping point because, all right, now we're, we've all decided we're going to let our rage hit the streets. I think it was the tipping point because God determined that that was the tipping point. Not, not even primarily because we had enough and we're not going to take it anymore, but that God had heard the cries of a people. Mm. For a long, uh, a long amount of centuries, the many generations that heard the cries of the people and decided to step in at a time where they were still being reminded of it, and yet for the most part, nothing was done. And so I think that it was God that determined the tipping point for our nation. And as is the case when God determines the tipping point, it's not something that can die down a week later. And while I, I do not even hint or suggest that God is in any of the destruction, any of the violence that, take, that has taken place as a result of this. But really with anything, any tipping point in America that has lunged us toward greater good, there has been the presence of, of good and the presence of evil in terms of agendas at play. Uh, and in this context, it's no different. There have been protesters of all races, of ages, there have also been um, white supremacist groups or Antifa who come in and use that moment to leverage it um, for their own wicked purposes. And then there's just people that take advantage of the moment, the looters. You know, when I was in Minneapolis, I actually got a chance to hang out with a looter. And I was talking to him about- Oh, yeah? Yes. I was talking to him about, you know, the, the looting thing. And not even he was proud about it. 
Not even, not even he was raising his head saying, yeah, I'm a looter. He wasn't even trying to defend it. It's sort of like a crime of passion, a crime of the moment. The doors opened and people rushed in and he rushed in with it. Even when he talked about it, just as an African-American man, not a follower of Christ, he wasn't proud of it. He wasn't uh, boastful about it. Um, I don't even, I don't think he was ashamed of it, but I think he understood that it, it wasn't a helpful thing. So here we are in this context at a tipping point that has spread from Minneapolis throughout the entire the United States. Now it's headed into the rural areas and it's tipped past the borders of our nation into, I think, what is it, half the nations of the earth now. So clearly there is something at play that is not political, nor is it simply a reactive rage. Uh, but I really do think that God is highlighting that he wants this issue paid attention to. And that's what, we, that's what I feel like we're in the middle of, the determining of, of how we pay attention to it and whether we'll be responsive to what God is trying to do to enter into lament, to begin to embrace repentance uh, for for what has been done in this nation and for even for how it still plays out, to enter into the kind of humility that would be willing to admit that, um, that, that just ordinary people might still be racist. That's a terrible thing to say. Nobody wants to have that title uh, that, had, that, they're, that, that, that hasn't experienced just the quality of brokenness where they, where they want to align with white supremacists. Nobody wants to say, we're a racist, but unless we're willing to let God humble us in such a way where we can identify that we've, we experience, um, what is it, the phrase, uh, white fragility, which I don't particularly care for that phrase, but we experience the benefits from a nation that is shaped by racism in ways that our black brothers and sisters don't. Unless we allow ourselves to enter into that humility and have that conversation with God, I don't think that, um, that uh, we'll come away from this season with all that God intended. And one of the things I think that he intended was, one, to answer the cry, the groanings of, of, of an African-American people who had been wronged from the beginning, who, who have been subject to um, infrastructure and, and laws and systems that were in their origins built to subjugate and control and set back African-Americans to acknowledge that any lunges forward that have happened um, for African-Americans have been because a group of people had to get together and fight and bleed for it, not because it was willingly offered because anyone saw it was wrong. So I think that humility and repentance and lament um, are some of the themes that showed up in the early part of this this uh, riot, the protest that broke out with, with George Floyd, there was mayhem, but there also shortly after that began to fill the news feed, we started to hear other words in our social media, other language that was coming through our feed, lament and repentance and humility. And is it possible that I'm a part of the problem, even though I'm a good person, the right questions were starting to be asked. And while, of course, yeah. we saw people that said, you're making it up, this is not a thing anymore, you know, this is just political, you know, what, what's your people's problem? Why can't we all just get along? Sure, we saw that deflective, unhelpful, sort of subconscious, um, um, unconscious bias from people who just are not quite sure what to do with it, but that hasn't been um, at the core of it. At the core of it, more, more people of all different colors, including American, um, American Caucasians, have took to the streets than at any other time. Mm. More, more of the church have begun to join the fight and take to the streets um, in this particular context um, than at any other of the past protests that I've seen in my lifetime. I've seen more unity as a result of this. And unity, not among the people that already got along in Christian community and the denominations that already got along, but unity among denominations and church leaders who do not talk to one another. 
that their doctrines are so opposed to one another, they just do not have conversation. And these people are coming to the table around this man's death and all of the things that it, the conversations that it has brought up. When I say this is that, it's this idea that what if this is the revival that we've been praying for? What if it doesn't look like us being sent to another beautiful stadium with really wonderful music and being convicted in our hearts to, convict, to con confess of some terrible sin in our lives? What if what's more useful, a more needful revival is the kind that causes us to take to the streets, to fight for justice, to fight for human dignity, to live into that second command in a way that affects and impacts people that aren't even followers of Christ, to confront systems of injustice, to make for lasting change. That is a more useful revival than people repenting of their sin of pride or of their sin of, of stealing from their, their partner at work. This, what if this is that? that we've been praying for. And, and I can wax on and on. I probably need you to ask me a question to direct me. But yeah, we went to Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as you talk about a more useful revival, I think it definitely makes me think, well, that sounds like the kind of revival that Isaiah talked about, the kind of revival that Amos talked about, you know, over and over those prophets in the latter part of the Old Testament, they talked, they, you hear God saying, I am sick and tired of your stadium gatherings. Here's what I want. And he points people toward justice and mercy. And yet there's never the opposite reflected in the scripture. There's never a time where God says, I'm so tired of all of your acts of justice and mercy. Please just gather and sing more songs. There's this constant call to the streets. And so I hope this is that, Lisa, and this feels like that as you're talking about it. Um, and I don't know if it's because Carlos and I are the only people in the crowd for this sermon you're preaching, or, or if it's because it's God, but I think it's because it's God. So you said about 27 things in there that I want to ring out a little bit more, but I think that maybe the simplest way to hone in is to say, I want to try to get really personal and vulnerable with you and then really personal and vulnerable with me and if I ask you anything you don't want to answer just say I don't want to answer it and we'll cut that part out and that'll be fine but you know as you were talking I was thinking about Exodus 3 where God calls Moses to to free the Israelites and he says I've heard the cries of my people so it's not Moses who's been praying. It is the, the people who have been quietly suffering for generations. And you're a woman of prayer. And you're also an African-American woman who has lived every day of her life in the United States. And so I'm wondering about that phrase you were using, I've heard the cries of my people. If you could just share with us a little bit about, is this something you have prayed toward? And what has it been like to carry this burden that has gone largely unseen as a Christian leader and a Christian woman? I was raised in Detroit at a time where it was, or at least uh, the circumstances I was raised in, most everyone around me was African-American. If we saw a white person, it was because they were lost. And we live in a middle-class America. Um, but even in that context, our experience with racial injustice uh, in micro and macro ways, it was weekly as a 14, as a 16, as an 18-year-old, as a 20-year-old. It was weekly um, for myself and, and the African-American community that I, I lived in. And that was growing up. And believe me, I'm much older now. Um, in, in our context, we live, and I don't speak for all African-Americans, but I do address sort of like the common themes that have risen up from our community. We live in uh, a nation where the idea of calling the police if you're in trouble seems counterintuitive. <laughs> 
the the idea of looking at uh, the lawmakers lawmakers and legislators as your friends seems counterintuitive. The the idea of addressing such obvious systemic uh, racially biased issues it seems like uh, uh, like trying to conquer a giant. It, it, for us, we're aware of just how deep these things run systemically and how deep they run in the hearts of the people, even some of those that we call friends. And so we've just learned to code switch, to change our language when we're in the presence of, of Caucasians, to, to uh, reflect on or, or model back more of how you guys are and how you guys talk and how you guys move so that, um, so that we can make you comfortable so that uh, we don't we don't uh, come off as too emotional or too aggressive or inappropriate language or slang. We're consistently moving through each day, making making these micro changes to fit into to this particular culture that is set up to favor uh, Caucasians. And uh, some, it's been coming up in some of the newsletters and posts, just a confession from African-Americans about how weary it can be. And so, mm. yes, I have prayed around these things, but my prayers haven't been like the strong intercessors that dig in for six hours at a time. My prayers have simply been, how long, oh Lord? How long? How long, oh Lord? How long? And for some reason, it's been those simple prayers that began in the, the first um, African slaves that were brought over and that continued through the generations that have now come out of my mouth and the mouth of the people of color and the mouth of those who, who are in jail who received sentences twice as much as the white person that did the exact same thing. How long, oh Lord, how long? But at the same time, um, we really, there really wasn't this idea that change was going to come. We weren't sort of hopefully looking for some epic seismic shift that would cause the kind of change that we knew needed to come. We had, we had convinced ourselves that we would spend our generations each working for um, tiny steps, inches forward. But God in his infinite wisdom and kind-heartedness decided that the collective cry, the collective lament, the collective how long, oh Lord, that he was ready to respond to that. And while he responded in a way that none of us could see coming, um, I'm so incredibly glad that he has. Yeah, and, and I know that this is personal for you, not just in your history, but in the present moment. You know, so many of us, myself included, are people that have witnessed this moment from our home cities. You know, I have been here in Brooklyn, and there has been an outcry in Brooklyn that has mirrored the outcry that started in Minneapolis, but but you actually, you went to the place. I remember talking to you, you know, three weeks ago or whenever it was, and you saying, I have to go there, <laughs> you know, and just feeling this like magnetic pull to like, I've got to put my feet on that ground. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us a little bit about the desire to be there and what, where that desire came from personally, and then what it was like to walk around Minneapolis? I, I believe it was within a week of, George Floyd's death that you were there, correct? Yeah, so tell us. George is, was an ordinary guy. He had grew up in hard places and that had shaped who he was and who he became. He had a run-in with the law. He did a little bit of time, um, wanted to make a new start for himself and moved to a new city and actually began to make a fresh start, began to connect with the faith community, with the NAACP organizations trying to do good in African-American communities. He was certainly no perfect person. And nobody, um, uh, least of all George, qualifies to be called a martyr. Nonetheless, uh, one of the things that he was remembered for saying among those who loved him the most and knew him the best was that 
he wanted to make a difference in this world. But that was the phrase they remembered of him, the way that we remember of David saying, and up that it was said of him, and David inquired of the Lord, and David inquired of the Lord, and David inquired of the Lord. This was the thing that his friends and family said that they heard George say, you know, time and time again, I just want to make a difference in this world. His, his, his jail time, all of that was behind him, and he was stretching forward. He was no saint. He was no perfect person. And yet, when his uh, life expired, on that day, um, it set in motion a series of events um, that in essence touched and has changed the world. Um, when news of his death broke out and the video started to surface, uh, those in Minneapolis were enraged and angry and appalled and in the middle of COVID-19, where they were told they couldn't even go out that much. They couldn't, you know, gather in crowds of more than 10 in certain places, 25 to 50. But none of that mattered as they took to the streets. Some took to the streets purely in protest of yet another dead Negro at the hands of police brutality. Some took to the streets just to express their outrage that it has happened again in the way that it happened, um, but took to the streets they did. And, and America started to watch as the storyline unfolded of, well, did he die as a result of this or didn't he? Or he wasn't a perfect person, maybe he deserved it. Maybe he was on something and they felt the need for it. Maybe he wasn't. As, as the victim uh, began to be greater victimized, there was this outcry that it really didn't matter. It was this awareness that this was now bigger than George. That George was the beginning, but it was bigger than George. And the crowds began to swell hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds took to the streets. And partly because the church had not taken her place yet, partly because the church didn't understand her role in, in tragic and in national uh, events and local events, partly because the church didn't understand her place on the front lines of justice, the, the spearhead of the protest or at the hands of angry people and white fascists and people who take advantage of that situation and even gangs. So when I got down there you know, a few days later, there was, there was damage, not just in one little part of Minneapolis. It had spread into most parts of, any, of Minneapolis. There weren't protests that were all confined to, say, a downtown area. It was stretched across the whole city. There weren't, there were no longer hundreds, but thousands and tens of thousands. And the, the, the business in sectors just began to board up all of their windows as you went down the street. You just saw boards, boarded up windows, which the artist in that context took as canvases. And so they started to fill up all of the boarded up windows with graffiti and art uh, honoring the death of George Floyd and um, rebuking police brutality and calling for justice, the what were just bland boards from one day began to fill up and become these colorful murals uh, of an outcry for justice. Uh, at the same time, there were a police department, a police department was set on fire. The iconic sort of um, a starting point. Um, the post office was set on fire, bank was set on fire. There were, um, Target and when Kmart or Walmarts um, looted, uh, completely gutted all along some of the cityways. There was smoke that filled the air. There were more and more anti-fascists and white supremacists beginning to come in to leverage this situation to try to cause mayhem and have it hidden by the general chaos. And they targeted African-American and LGBT community and businesses. 
And so they came, they would come in early in the morning and set up, um, um, set up, uh, not bombs, but um, the type of setup to where you could come back later and just throw a match in it and it would whoosh, began to consume of whatever building this thing was in front of. We would see those in the morning, these just strange sort of box things filled with rocks or stones or, or um, kindlings. And in the evening, we'd hear story that those same places had just been consumed and that had just gone up so these, these businesses had just sort of gone up so quickly. And so we saw just how anti-fascism was leveraging that moment to do damage uh, to a people that already were experiencing brokenhearted. And we, we watched as in the media, it played out as those people say they're, they're protesting for George Floyd, but look at what they're doing here. And while there may be some of that that's true, it doesn't include the other parts of the story. There was a, a the protests were, they were wild, but the police in Minneapolis finally decided that there was a difference between the crazy protesters and this strategic group, this, uh, this, this white supremacist group that has come in. And they decided they weren't going to focus on the protesters who were illegally, um, illegally gathered because now the city was under curfew but instead they were gonna focus on the white fascists. And so they picked a part of town that we happened to be doing an all night prayer meeting at, on the rooftop of, we just, just zooming out live an all night prayer meeting. People from all nations were coming in. We had live worship on the roof. You, you, you stayed up all night? You stayed yeah. up all night in prayer in a city under curfew? All night in prayer. We were, we were in a rooftop <laughs> of a building. We oh, so Lisa, you're the best. <laughs> I couldn't be any less surprised. You'd be like, why would we pray during the day? They've issued a curfew. Just a half a block away is where the the uh, police and the National Guard had cornered the white supremacists and were able to wow. contain them so they couldn't get to the larger crowd. But then the following day that we were there, we heard that in anger, the white supremacists took to to shooting random African-Americans on the street after dark. Um, and wow. these are the things that we experienced when we were down there, but you might not necessarily hear across your standard news feeds. There were people yeah. of prayer in those protests. There were, there were people of worship in those protests. There were people who were angry. There were looters. There were fascists. It was mayhem. It was sacred. This is that. Mm. <laughs> that closing line was unbelievable. <laughs> All right. I want to get personal with me now. Um, you've said a number of things about the church's role that have really grabbed my attention. Um, and I want to know what you think the church's role is overall, because you've said things like the, you know, this outcry started it looked this way at first because the church had not yet recognized her place and things like that. But before we get there, I mean, it seems that you've been really clear that this starts with lament and repentance. And I feel like it's really easy for someone like me to nod my head in agreement with you. But I would like for you, uh, an African-American woman who's a leader in the church that I love and trust um, to tell me, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for a young white male leading in the church to lament and to repent right now? Um, because this is a stronghold, as you've said, this is, this is a area of sin that has been managed, not dealt with and repented of within the church for generations. And so here I am inheriting a stronghold that I also benefited from. So how do I, how do you coach me to live and to lament and to repent at this moment? There has been a, a move toward repentance. I mean, toward lament and repentance, which means that, um, God has determined to help his people 
um, be in this moment in this direction. And so, so know that you're not being asked to, to sort of turn on the waterworks um, or try to find your inner weepy in this time yeah. that it is actually God himself that is encouraging his people to enter into lament. So know that that's the, the, the move, the, the rivers are already flowing in that. Um, it, it requires you to pay attention to an arena that you've been used to not paying attention to. And so here, mm. I'd encourage you in a really simple way. I mean, you're pretty hip, you're a millennial. I would encourage you to, to, to do incredibly simple things like permit yourself to pay attention to the thing that you have become skilled at looking away from. And we are in a social society. You can go on Netflix, you can go in news feeds, you can, you can check out eBooks to, to find any particular thing that will put you into the storyline of America over these centuries from the view of the African-American. Just began to pay attention, to look at, to face thing that we're not that you're not accustomed to facing i believe even as you make a simple step as that to pay attention not unlike moses who had experienced burning bushes because of the type of field he was in a burning bush was not an uncommon thing uh, particularly in the heat of the summer the uncommon thing was that the burning bush didn't just flare up and then burn down it, and that piqued his curiosity. And as a result, he came away with the start of a friendship from God and a call to set a great people in, who are in need, a call to set them free. And so there's, there's this idea of paying attention to the thing that you normally don't, to actually, I'm going to go see what this thing is. That is yeah. not like Moses in the desert who went to see a thing that he was used to that he was going to give his attention to. And so I, I encourage you to take a look, to pay attention, to not look away. I believe that God will meet you there as you, to, to encourage your heart to experience what normal people call empathy. Just, just mm-hmm. human dignity. Empathy. <laughs> normal, normal people. Normal people. <laughs> like people that don't believe a Jewish peasant rose from the dead and that solves it all. <laughs> right. Don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. And you said, you know, yeah. people, even normal people yeah. understand the power of this thing, empathy, that we are yeah. not putting in the language of lament. To, uh, so pay attention. Uh, to let yourself look at it. I believe God will meet you and give you the grace to empathize, to not look at these things as a detached observer. But to be in Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, a, that's the novice thing. You can't make that novice error of looking at it like a researcher or detached or to get mm-hmm. some facts or figures, but to, but to lean into it um, and let the Spirit of the Lord give you empathy. And I've been told for those among my Caucasian friends that, um, that it wasn't, they didn't have to lean into it long before the lament met them as a, as a wonderful and a terrible friend along the way. And it was lament that paved the way for humility to come and partner alongside ind- individuals. And humility um, invited his friend repentance to come along and repentance spoke to human souls of what they needed to repent of. And, and as people began to speak who have started that process, um, these aren't the people who post, well, all lives matter. These aren't the people who post, you know, things that suggest that the African-American experience is just, um, has been fine and they don't know what we're all whining about. Um, that these are the people who are now beginning to partner with God um, to be to uh, understand his heart, to understand his move in this hour. And these are the people who, when they pray, <laughs> because they've humbled themselves and they've not turned away and they've postured their heart to face the God of justice, the God of justice is responsive to their prayers that African-Americans have been praying for so long. Oh, Lord have mercy. Oh Lord, bring change, bring freedom. Oh Lord, help us to transform society, help us to end racism. And then the prayers began to 
come freely and more broadly and God begins, begins to be more responsive. So that's how I'm answering that question at the moment. Wow, yeah, I mean, this is just hitting me right now, but I've, I've had a couple moments where I have been leading something in our church since this has occurred, a prayer in response or saying a word or something like that. And I have, I've gotten really emotional. Like I've begun to weep to, to not in like a, there, there's a public speaker weep that's nice and kind of helps. And there's a public speaker weep. That's like, you've got to pull it together, man we can't understand what you're saying. And it's been the kind that is not helpful. And it's surprised me each time because I think there's often a little bit of a feeling of pressure of like, I need to interpret this moment and interpret it quickly and then say it just right. And, and in a moment when maybe at least part of me is trying to do that, I, I become undone. And as you're talking, I'm having this revelation that, that undoing is the God of justice. It is the God of justice breaking my heart for what's broken his, but also it is the answered prayer of many primarily African-American people of generations before me crashing down on me in a moment of prayer. And I'm so humbled by that thought. And I'm also like staggering with, something I I know is true, but I'm seeing in a new way right now, which is that God is always listening and almost never in a hurry. Mm. God is always listening to our prayers. And yet, man, he is slow to act sometimes, but he is so faithful to act. He's so faithful to care. He's so faithful to respond. So we've got like two minutes and two big questions left. So I'm just going to give them both to you and let you do the best you can at, in the clutch here. Um, so after the lamenting and the repenting, what is the church's role? Like, where does the church find themselves on the front lines of this thing? And how does the church cry out for justice, not just in a, in a moment? How are we still crying out for justice in a month and in a year and in a decade? And then where does prayer fit into all of this? Because you are someone who has devoted your whole life to prayer, and yet you have a bleeding heart for justice. So how do those things collide? I want to answer the last one first. Okay. And that is that it has been, it has been prayer that has brought us to this moment. It has been prayer that has birthed this movement and moment of justice. It has been response to the prayers or the cries of people that God has responded to break this uh, this bondage wide open. And it will continue to be prayer on two fronts, especially prayer that's needed because God, he has not just appealed or responded to the heart of a people, but he's also shaken loose strongholds, principalities, and powers that have, uh, that have leveraged racism in America and made in, embedded it into our culture so much so that we're apathetic about it. And there, there is consistently uh, the need for people praying into that and partnering with God that indeed these strongholds would continue to come down. And the response of that is systematic infrastructure change. The second thing is that this is the time to be praying for our brothers and sisters and and denominations and parts of the body of Christ who think that this is just all a big sham, who think that this is all political, who think that this is not a big deal, they don't know what all the fuss is about, who think that the, the Blacks are just, you know, they're reverse racism, who just don't get it. This is a, the time for us to play the, the not leave the 99 to get the one role, to be praying for their eyes to be open for their for their understanding to be open for their ears to be open that so that they can join us in this movement and see what God is doing and take their place in this revival we cry out for those who are on the edges shaking their fist at blacks while calling themselves Christians we must pray for them even while we're in lament and repenting for our own blindness and apathy prayer is absolutely important and then finally well let me interrupt you for a second and just say i am oh that's such an important point it is so much easier 
to complain about the one who's lost or to point the finger at. And it is the work of Jesus to turn that complaint into a prayer to God instead of like a word of gossip about a brother or sister. And it is the work of Jesus to remember that that person is a brother or sister. Mm -hmm. Continue. And then the final thing is that prayer belongs at the forefront of the protest that the people mm. of God, when they show up in places of injustice, when they show up on the front lines, that they actually change the environment. They change the spirit of the protest. They mediate the rage and they highlight the true goal, which is reconciliation and peace and change, that the people of prayer, the, the priests and the worshipers would go out before the battle, before those with swords, even in the Old Testament, that the people of prayer belong right on the front lines, praying for what's happening behind them and for the reason that we're all gathered, crying out to God and affecting the hearts and souls and mood of what's happening behind them praying in advance for what's going to happen when the streets are cleared and now the hard work of changing systemic justice begins prayer is profoundly important all throughout and i want to encourage people to who can't meet in church services to social distance and meet out at the front of protests even the protests that are not church-oriented, just regular people protest, or people protesting because they don't believe any of this is doing any good and it's all a sham, that the church should be out in front of those, of those groups too, praying loud, praying faithfully. Keep praying. It's going to pave the way for the work to continue being done. Amen. Amen. Um, you know, I, I would, I'd love to end just by asking you to to pray over our community. We got to have a video of you praying over us in our worship gathering a couple weeks back, but we wanna be one of those churches. We wanna be one of those churches that's a picture of the end, that's a picture of that that you're talking about. This is that. We wanna be a picture of it. And we also, uh, we wanna be on the front lines praying. And we also are filled with biases and totally blinded in so many ways and completely fallen and in need of repentance and so just would love if you would pray over us yes father dad we love you even though we hardly know how we said yes to that wild nazarene that son of yours and we have not looked back and have not regretted it not one day we cry out to you in this moment on behalf of a congregation that you are speaking into and endeavoring to expose more of your heart to. I, I ask that you would continue to help them awaken, and that, that you would help them awaken to see you from the North Face, to see you from your justice, side to for those who who have loved you as the lamb that you would awaken them to see you as the lion roaring in this time awaken their hearts to justice i pray that you would resuscitate their hearts to beat and burn again for justice i pray that you would pour revival into this congregation a revival for them to take their place on the front lines, crying out for those without a voice, serving for those who are marginalized, working to end racism in all its forms, that you would give them revival. I pray that you would give them repentance to see that thou art the man, that we are the guilty parties. Give them the ability to take responsibility for their generation and the generation behind them and the generation behind them. Repent, give them repentance. And then finally, Father, release to them strategy so that they move in a unified way, striking full floor force at the edge of justice where you've uniquely placed them. Release to them strategy and bless them in their going 
to answer the prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, if you're listening and you want more of Lisa, join the club. But she will be preaching uh, on our live stream in August, schooling us a little bit on prayer. So really looking forward to that. Thanks for your time, Lisa. We love you. Love you too. Hi, it's Meg, and here's what else you need to know this week. We have developed a book called Bread that we're using as a community beginning June 21st to read through the New Testament together in a year. Bread is the same acronym for engaging with scripture that we've been using this trimester in our community groups. We've intentionally created paper copies to create spaces in our day when we're not engaging with our devices for you to use alongside a paper Bible. Several artists from our community have designed covers for us, so you can select whichever cover you'd like. If you've not ordered your copy, please do so today, as it may not reach you in time. To order, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com backslash community. Our Heaven to Earth series is back for the summer and joining forces with Airbon. Join us for a six-week course called Race, Class, and the Kingdom of God, covering the biblical ground on how to become a reconciling community in a world torn by racial and economic divides. The series begins this Monday, June 15th. We'll have two class options, the Monday night group at 8 p.m. or the Wednesday night group at 7 p.m. We highly encourage you to commit to the six weeks as the series teachings build upon each other as the weeks progress. We are so excited that over 90 of you have already signed up and there is still time to register. So head to tgcwilliamsburg.com backslash heaven to earth to sign up.